keep on uh, trucking here. I realize it's Easter Sunday, and uh, in the oddity of 2020 and not being able to have a big room full of people, um, I got my notes slowed down. I was delivered a mask with uh, Chicago Bears, so we're good if I need to put that on and not spit on you. But uh, anyway, we're going to continue our study in the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 1. Uh, I know it's Easter and everything, and I uh, saw some stuff on Facebook and stuff about Easter. And if you need a special day to remember the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, then there's something wrong with your understanding. And uh, we should be celebrating that uh, every day. And yet here we sit in the book of Romans as Paul begins to... Uh, the courtroom, and uh, he begins to lay out the, the charges here against the sinner. Uh, last time we were in verse 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And we looked at that issue there last time of therein, uh, a component of the gospel of Christ is this issue of the righteousness of God being revealed. And we went over to chapter 3, so run over to chapter 3 real quick, and verse 25. Chapter 3, verse 25. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness. Verse 26, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness. And that issue of the, of the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, uh, come back to chapter 1, and that issue of faith to faith. And really, to kind of review, but to sum it up quickly, because we're going to get into verse 18 and 19 this morning, the, fa the, faith, the faith of the Father, the Father's faith in His Son, and the faithfulness of the Son to then go carry out the will of the Father, that is what that faith to faith is all about. Uh, our salvation, we are not a part of, the, of that equation at all. Our fingerprints aren't in this at all. This is why Paul doesn't start talking about the gospel of Christ by talking about all of the benefits to you and I that we get. We focus in on that, forgiveness, eternal life, security, you know, and so forth, uh, eternal glory and everything. But rather, this is his, the faithfulness of the Son, the faithfulness of the Father, and the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit. So our salvation is due to the eternal love of the Godhead for each other. And that issue there of the just shall live by faith, the, the quote out of Habakkuk and everything, it's turn, Paul turns it around a little bit because he's not talking about our faith. He's talking about the faith of the Godhead. So faith to faith has everything to do with what the Lord has done for us, the confidence that the Father had that the Son would go and do His will. And then the very fact that the, that the son went and did it. And again, today's Easter. He went, he died at Calvary, was buried, and rose again the third day. That is what the word of the father was to him. Therefore, he went and did it. And then on the third day, the father resurrected him. But it's an interesting thing that when you study the, chap the verses out, 
The Father resurrected him, the Holy Spirit resurrected him, and he resurrected himself. <laughs> so it's this mutual movement. Now, verse 18, we're, which is where we're, we're going to spend the majority of our morning in and then get into verse 19 here because they are connected. The very next issue now is for the, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And now you have to remember the courtroom. Paul has introduced himself. He's come down through the introduction. Verse 15, he's, he says, I am ready to preach the gospel. Verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 17, for the, for the uh, righteousness of God is revealed. So you've got all of this going on. And then the next thing now is for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now Paul is going to stand as the prosecutor. And he's going to begin to lay out the arguments on the behalf of God. And what he's going to do is say, hey, everything that God's going to do now is in line with keeping with his integrity, with his righteousness, with his holiness, with his justice. That's why that's the first issue. And the first thing now we're going to talk about is going to be his wrath. And he sets the courtroom scene here. And, and we're going to, we'll get into the wrath issue specifically over in chapter 2 a little bit more when we get over there. And really what we're going to learn from this point all the way down to the middle part of chapter 3 is we're going to learn about what God's wrath from heaven is all, the, all about, what he's doing. Paul stands in that courtroom. He stands as God's prosecutor. And he's going to begin to lay out a series of charges against the sinner, against humanity. And these charges are going to be legal. They're going to be binding. There's no way around them. They're there. And then he's going to demonstrate that the way that God is dealing with the sin dilemma, the sinner's dilemma, is right and just and right on course, and he's not violating anything that he himself has said. Notice verse, 9, verse 18, God revealed, God's wrath is revealed from heaven. Now, he's not talking about executing his wrath here on earth. He's talking about, he isn't talking about God pouring out his wrath. I, I've been watching uh, I got an email about some crazy stuff about Matthew 24 we, we talked about last week and so forth. I've been watching some different little things on Facebook and on Twitter and everything. And, uh, you know, that is not what... One guy actually uses this verse, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, and says, see, that's what this virus is all about. It's God's wrath being poured out on the earth. That is not what Paul's talking about. The word poured or pour out isn't in the verse at all. What's in the verse? Revealed. You see, there's something that, Paul, that God is, is revealing about his wrath. That's the issue. There's some things that you need to know and to understand and to comprehend about his wrath. Now, his wrath, the day of the Lord and so forth, that's very specific dealing with Israel's program. Um, by the way, if you come over to chapter 5 of Romans, chapter 5, 
verse number 9. When we're talking about that eternal love, wait till we get to Romans 5 and see all about God's love, that eternal love that he has for man. Uh, Romans 5, verse 9, he says, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. See, that's the second coming, the tribulation, the end of the prophetic program. We've been delivered from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians says. Delivered, past tense, already done. It's something that, that you and I as believers, we should never think that God's trying to get even with us or any of that because we have this solid foundation here of understanding what God's really doing today. Come back to chapter 1. So when he says here, for the wrath of God is revealed... What Paul is making, he's, Paul's going to make known something here about God's wrath. If you look there at verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. You see, Paul is going to reveal some things here. God is making some things known here. He has established his eternal right to deal with man, man's dilemma. Let's put it like that. You see, God has the right to destroy those that offend his holiness. That's what Paul is, he's, again, think about the courtroom. And what the, he, Paul's the prosecutor. What's he doing? He's laying in the evidence. God has a right to allow in his justice demands to be satisfied. So God has a right to destroy the offender, to destroy the sinner. He's got a right to destroy us. And Paul is going to establish that right. He's going to establish that that issue about God's wrath is being revealed against the unworthiness of humanity, the offender, the sinner. And we have to have that pros proper perspective. Come over to chapter 9 about this, quite honestly. We have to have a proper perspective about the magnitude of our salvation and the very dangerous position that we are really in, quite honestly. Uh, Romans 9, look down at verse 22. And I, I sometimes think, you know, we look at this stuff in Romans and we just kind of blow through the first three chapters of, you know, ooh, it's, you know, that's not talking about me because I'm a saved guy. But really I think we ought to be reminded as believers, as saints, to say, hey, you know what? We were in a very dangerous position when we heard the gospel of our salvation. Matthew, uh, Romans 9, verse 22. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, willing to show his wrath, endured with long-suffering the vessels of wrath, there we are, fitted to destruction, Notice that man, humanity, fitted themselves. The vessels of wrath fitted. 
we fitted ourselves to be destroyed. God didn't do this. We do it. We did it. Adam did it. We'll see here in a little bit, and Adam's going to make some decisions. He's going to operate on the data he's got, and he's going to operate in a very poor manner. So when you come back to chapter 1, from 118 all the way down to 319 now, the, the courtroom scene is going to be developed, the first phase. And he, this, this is the arraignment section of the courtroom. This is where it's time to lay out all the charges against the defendant, the sinner. So he's going to begin to list a series of charges against the sinner, against man. And man is going to refute it and begin to defend it. And then God's going to get down there at the end and just tell him to shut up. Enough's enough. And then he's going to reveal the, the, really not a sentencing, but rather a, this is what I did for you. So really you've got, you've got some charges laid out here. We'll put them up here on the board for you. Okay? Charge one. Okay? So number one... Starts in 119 and goes, chapter 119 goes all the way down to verse 32. That's charge one. And in this charge, this charge is, man is willfully rejecting God. Man is willfully rejecting God's testimony. Charge one, you willfully rejected my testimony to you, you've rejected it. Charge 2 starts in chapter 2. Starts there at verse 1, goes down to verse number 11. This charge is where man is attempting to be self-righteous. And uh, he begins to give the idea that he could save himself that he really doesn't need God. So he has a self-righteous bent. Then in chapter 2, you pick up there at verse 12, you go down to verse number 16, and now you get the third charge, and the third charge is that wonderful charge that everybody says in court, I just didn't know the law. Ignorance of the law. What's that? It's not an excuse. What does a judge usually do when you say, but look, I didn't know. Guilty. <laughs> he really does. Okay? But I didn't know that I had to come to a complete stop at the stop sign. What do you mean I can't roll? Everybody else just rolls through the stop sign. You know, when I was learning to drive a school bus, we'd come up, I came up to a stop sign and I just kind of slid through it, but I had the instructor with me, and she goes, <clears throat> you are to come to a complete stop. The bus is to rock backwards before you can proceed, because, you know, you stop, and it does a, that bus is, you know, moves. I'm like, okay. <laughs> she goes, don't ever let me see that again. And then I said, okay. So then at the end of the, after the end of the training session, she's like, by the way, 
I realize everybody slides through that stop because the stop's on a hill, you know, and it's, if you come to a stop on a hill and a bus, it takes you time to get through. And it was a two-way stop, not a four-way stop. So everybody kind of comes up and slides through it so that, you know, if it's clear, so they don't have to get the moment anyway. doesn't matter. The thing is, is what are you? You're guilty. But what is man going to do? I didn't know the law. What are you talking about, the law? What law? I didn't know that. And that's what really begins to happen. Then you have the next charge. You take chapter 2, verse 17, down to the end of the chapter, verse 29, I believe it is. Yep, 29. And in that charge, you see the, the charge of hypocrisy. If you knew what it was wrong to do what you did, but they still did it. And that begins that charge, and he uses the Jew really there, because they had what? They had the law. They had the word of God. They had it. And yet they chose to still do wrong. So there's a charge of hypocrisy. Then the fifth charge, chapter 3, the first eight verses, if I remember right. Yep, that's why you got notes. I turned 50 this week, an interesting day to have a birthday. Ephesians, or chapter 3, verse 1 to 8, this charge is really the worst of them all, quite honestly. Because this is the charge where man stands up and makes God complicit in their sin. This is the charge where man stands there and says, God, you, need, you made me a sinner. You are therefore a, the reason of my sinful behavior and activity and thought. And by the way, God, you need me to be a sinner. You made me one, and you need me to be one. Man, that's, that's, that's tough to bring, again, shifting the blame, passing the buck. Then you come down, I don't know if you can see this, the sixth one, you come down nine through, oh, what did I stop that, 12. And then the seventh one is 13 to 18. Can you guys see that, the bottom? So 6 is 3, 9 through 12, and the 7th charge is 13 to 18, and then you got 319. The 6th charge, chapter 3, 9 through verse number 12, is going to be a charge of man's lack of character. There's nothing good in them. There's nothing good in you at all. Then the 7th charge is a charge of... Well, really, we're all guilty, every one of us, not just one group and rather than the other. Then you have, come over to chapter 3, verse 19. 319. Because 319 is the conclusion. So what you've got is Paul says, hey, look, man, the wrath of God is going to be revealed here now. And we're going to reveal it in these seven charges against the sinner. Against the, against the defendant, the sinner, the offender. 
We're going to come in here now, and God is going to, through the Apostle Paul, lay out the issues of sinful man. He's answering seven critics, seven things where he says, where man's going to bow his back and offer a lame defense, by the way. Man's going to come along, and we're going to see it as we go through them. And Paul's going to say, you did this, and this is what man said to do. You got chapter 3? Look back there at chapter 1, just real quick. Chapter 1, verse 21, this first charge, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools and changed the glory. See, Paul's saying, this is what you did. This is what man did right here. You're guilty of it. 319, you're guilty, you're guilty. So as humanity begins to plead, and as humanity begins to, to self-justify, and as, as humanity begins to just flap their gums, come up with all the excuses, verse 19, now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Boy, what a conclusion. Man has been pleading, running their gums, get all their defense up, their lame ones. And you know what God finally says? Shut up. Enough. If you've ever raised children, you know what that is like. And they just get the yakking, yakking, and you just say, look, enough. We're going to do it because I said we're going to do it. Yeah, but, you know, and that's really what God does here. He finally says, enough. And the sinner is now left in the hands of a violated God. But you know what God does? They're guilty. But rather than dealing out a sentence that is worthy of the transgression. He says, be quiet. You know, the judge. Order in the court. Quiet. Instead of giving you a guilty sentence, or a you are guilty, but rather than giving you a sentence of eternal damnation, I'm going to... I want you to see something that I did for you in my love. I blamed my son. I laid all your charges on my son. I punished my son. So we begin to see in 19 that issue about the gospel of Christ. He start, and that's really what the rest of chapter 3 is about, and the 4, and then we see that great love in chapter 5. So this isn't a really a sentence of, you know, 30 years in jail. It's rather a pronouncement of Look at what I did for you. 
Man is going to raise these objections. There's seven of them there. By the way, you can break them out how you like. You know, Schofield's got them broke out a little different. That's fine. Come back to chapter one. But man's going to say them. And you know what God says in the end? I blame my son. I punish that innocent one. Remember last week we looked at the issue of the righteousness of God. And the law says we, we don't condemn the innocent. We condemn the wicked. We don't, we, we let, we don't let these, the, we don't hurt the, the righteous, the just. And what did God say? You know what I did? I blamed an innocent man for you. He took your punishment. He took your death. He experiences your wrath. The Lord looks at that cup in the Garden of Eden and says, hey, he looks into the cup of the wrath of the indignation of God. Woo! And it's without mixture. And he says, I, if there's a way for that thing to pass by, please. He goes, but I know it's not. Not my will, but thy will be done. So this isn't a sentence, really. It's rather good news. And it's the good news of the deep, the rich love of God. I, was, I don't know if you guys have seen that guy on YouTube, the judge out of... Uh, Providence out of Connecticut, the old man, and he gets the people talking, and uh, it's traffic. It's all traffic stuff. He's a traffic, he's an older guy. Man, what, Pro Providence something. Anyway, it's on YouTube, and uh, he'll get them talking, and then usually he will, uh, he, he dismisses, because he's like, well, you got to have .2 seconds at the stoplight for it to be considered a stop, according to the statute and all this stuff, and he, go, and he looks at it, and he goes, Inspector Quinn, what do you think? And then he goes, eh, it looks close enough, judge. And the judge goes, eh, I think it's .22. All right, you're good, dismissed. But then lately, on a couple of the videos, he says, well, we have this, and the lady was guilty. I mean, she admitted it, it was bad. And she had like six tickets and all this stuff and owed the court like 200 bucks or something goofy, you know. And he goes, but I've got this letter from some folks that watch our uh, YouTube and they send a check, and I'm going to take this check and apply it to and cover your bill. Because the letter says, hey, if someone is destitute and can't pay, use this money to help pay their charges. You know what God did? You're, done, you're guilty. You're destitute. And my son said, here, use me as paying that price. So when we get down to the end of the a reign of the guilt of the courtroom scene of phase one, if you will, God's going to stand up and say, you're guilty. You need to stop talking. You need to shut up. You need to be quiet because my son just wrote the check for you to cover everything. Now come back to chapter 1, verse 18. I hope you catch what's happening here. When he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. There's a component of God's righteous anger against the charges, and, and they're illustrated in the charges against man. These charges, these seven, as we go through them, we will see that they specifically violate his holiness, his righteousness. And Paul starts 
with the first one of, of humanity of man is willfully rejecting the testimony that God has implanted in them. Ungodliness. You see that term, unrighteousness. The issue of ungodliness. An, an ungodly person is someone who holds the truth in unrighteousness. The rest of the chapter is going to describe what that looks like. But you'll notice ungodliness is a reference to man's character. Unrighteousness is a reference to man's conduct. So there's two hits here against man. About his character and his conduct. You know, there's ungodliness. There is nothing that we possess that's of any value to God. Nothing. And everything we do, our conduct, demonstrates at every turn that we are guilty. As a sinner, we're guilty. We're guilty. The end of this verse, he says, who hold the truth. Hold. That's not holding. You know, it's not a hold. Man's activity, man's behavior, man's conduct is holding, suppressing, holding down the truth. When, you, when he talks about holding, we would say restrain. You know, hey, they restrained him. They held him down. They suppressed him. Now, the natural, the adversary's natural bent, it's called the course of the world, is to hold down truth to suppress truth. But the context here is what's critical. What does man, what truth is man holding down in the context? Well, it's verse 17, the righteousness of God. You see, what man is seeking to do is to, hold, is to suppress the truth in regards to the righteous nature of God. So God says, that's fine, you do that. I'm going to reveal some things here that are going to just take care of you in a heartbeat. Man attempts to hold down and to hide some things about God and his righteousness and his activity. If you look at verse 19, he says, because that which was made known of God is manifest in them. You see, there's some things that, that man is attempting willfully to reject and to hold down and to suppress and to hide and to put over in the corner. And it has to do with this testimony that God has put in them. He put it in them in two ways. One, in their conscience. And then two, in the issue of creation. Okay? And the rest of the morning, we'll talk about number one, the issue of the conscience in them. You see, in our conscience, in the, the consciousness of man, there is a hard wire, and then there is a soft wire, if you will. Okay? You and I are hardwired. 
God has put something into our, into our conscience that, er, that, that brings us and it, and it motivates us, it moves us to worship something. To look at something and know that there, there, is, a, there is something out there bigger than me, than I am. We call him God in them. By the way, God is, because that which was made known of God is man. You see, God's not hiding anything. One of the, the accusations that man will lay at God's feet is, I didn't know that. I'm you never told us that. Man, when I think about the great white throne judgment, when that nation of Israel comes before God and they say, wait a minute, man, we were of the children of Abraham. How dare you do this to us? And they begin to roll out that stuff. And he'll say, yeah, but you rejected me when I came in the Gospels. Yeah, but that wasn't us. That was our forefathers. And eh, don't, don't, you know, now we get into some, okay. We didn't know anything about, we didn't know anything about this Apostle Paul guy and who, you know, when you changed the program like you're saying. And he goes, yeah, you did. It was called My Word. And it's called the book of Acts. You see, they're going to come up and pop up with this, we didn't know. And God's going to say, I made it all known to you. You follow that? I revealed all this to you. He's placed an awareness in man. He isn't hiding anything. He's placed an awareness in man that there's someone out there bigger than man. And it's God. So what does religion do? Well, what does man do? Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They developed a religion, didn't they? Verse 23, they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image. And they bring him out of God's glory all the way down to the puddle where we can squish him. They brought him, not only did they bring God to man's level, then they made him a little lower than man. You see, what, did, what does religion do? They begin to develop different ways to get back to God, don't they? We've all heard it. Every road leads back to God, don't you? That, yeah, we saw that bumper sticker yesterday, coexist. It's got all the things. But the thing is, is that when you run all that out, none of those people can coexist with each other, let alone with us believers. You know, Hindus got a thing. The Hindus have a thing that God is like an elephant. And man is blind. So when man touches the elephant's trunk, man says, which is God, oh, that's a snake. So man thinks God's a snake. When man touches the foot, they get all, they, I mean, it just goes on and on. It's just like, why am I reading this? <laughs> you know? But what is it? All roads lead back to God. Today's Easter. You got the, you know, all, I, it was very fascinating to read. Um, I follow a tech blog, a church tech blog and stuff, trying to keep up on some of the technology out there. And, and the last couple of weeks has been everything about streaming and live streaming, doing stuff we've been doing for years. There are churches that never did that, never had to do it, and now they're having to do it with this, with this shutdown stuff. 
and how they're struggling with it because they can't find the equipment because not only are they having to stream live, now you got all the businesses having to do it. So, you know, they, they, and all this stuff, and there was a point in that. What was the point in that? I don't know. Anyway, religion, all roads lead. Oh, all of the different services out there. All of the different streams now going on. The different churches. And what are they doing? It's Easter Sunday, right? So the Lord rose today. You know, you know he died on Friday, right? <laughs> joke. Kidding. <laughs> Come on. It's a lie. You know, I didn't tell you my dad jokes this morning. Okay. Good? Okay. <laughs> All right. That's what religion does. And the point here is what's in man. What is it in man that's going to lead them to think that they are the result, the byproduct of a higher power? Well, God did that. So God provides two channels of awareness, if you will. He provides two mechanisms. The first one is the conscience. That's chapter 1, verse 19. The second manifest, uh, verse 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. God has put into man, hardwired into man's conscience, the evidence and the issue of a higher power and the issue of understanding what is right and what is wrong. We call it a God conscience, you will hear. Man understands that there is a conscience. Man understands that there is a God. This is an internal manifestation. It is an internal awareness. Now, what they do with that information, what they do with that data is going to be what we're going to be looking at. Then verse 20, the second line, if you will, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Now when you come to creation, that's an external thing. And you know what? It's clear that there is a God. It's clear that there is a creator. I was reading some surveys a couple years ago. And they said that between 80 and 95% of all of their surveyed people believe that there is a God. That only two, less than 2% are full-blown atheists. That the majority, and and then supposedly the cross-section of the survey, which is really where you kind of go, okay, who did they really talk to, was, was was their... The data on that was they talked to everybody. I mean, sinners, saved, lost, churchgoers, non-churchgoers, the whole bit. You see, there's an external awareness. How do you know that there's a God? Look around at creation. What's going on? Look at creation. Look at how things are made and developed. The problem with here with creation, is man's interpretation of the data, once again. 
misinterpretation of the data. Say it like that. You've seen the stuff lately with the virus about the modeling. We were talking about this yesterday. Do you realize that the climate change people use modeling as their scientific research? Well, what do we know about modeling? It's highly inefficient. How do you know that? Look at a hurricane blows up, going to come in, and they show you eight different models. And what, what, the one that killed me is when the hurricane took a right turn, went back out to Atlanta and didn't do any of the models, any of the eight. Did its own thing. I was like, yeah, there you go. Okay? That's man's misinterpretation of the data. Verse 18. Holding the truth in unrighteousness. you got to remember that. That's what man does with the internal awareness of, some, of, of the testimony of God that there's something bigger than he is. They've, they hold it. They suppress that. So God comes in and hardwires man's conscience. Verse 19 now. And yet there's a part of man's conscience that is soft. It's flexible. It's the issue that can be influenced the most. Come over to chapter 12. Illustrate this for you. I know when we did the study on the real you, we talked about the conscience, a defiled conscience, a weak conscience, and so forth. The conscience is the part of you that control, that uh, says that your activity is it's your norms and standards. It says that activity you did matches what we understand, so it was good. That activity wasn't, so now we violated those standards, so now we have a guilty conscience, and we feel guilty about it. God hardwired in our conscience the fact that there is a, that there is a God. Then as the soft side of it comes along, and, and that's the side that, honestly, where man begins to, to, to kind of allow some bad doctrine to get in, if you will, or, or, or the human viewpoint to get in. Look at chapter 12. Look at verse 19. Here's how a believer is to think, because he's talking to believers. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourself, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. See that? How, does the, how is the believer supposed to be thinking about our enemy? What is our inner man going to say? Feed him. He's my take care of him. God will take care of him. There'll be a vengeance play. I don't have to get vengeance. God has fixed the truth in you, hasn't he? To do it according to his word, to obey the word, and you've had your thinking... You're in chapter 12 now. Have your thinking adjusted. But what does the unsaved person say? He's my enemy. I'm going to get him. I'm not going to kill him because that's wrong, but I'm going to get him. I'm going to come up there and I'm going to, boom, get him. As a believer, we don't think that way. Our conscience, the soft side, has to be 
adjusted. Follow that. We're renewing the spirit. We renew our minds. We're allowing the word of God to come in and adjust our conscience. Come back to Genesis 3. I, I was thinking about some of this. Genesis 3. Think about Adam. Genesis 3. And watch Adam here. <laughs> oh, good old Adam. Adam, uh, Adam, Adam 3. <laughs> Genesis 3. Adam and Eve have eaten. Their eyes are open, verse 7, verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That was not an unfamiliar thing with Adam and Eve. Adam walked in the garden in the cool of the day with the Lord and was beginning to be educated and to begin instructed in the law of God. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Isn't that interesting? How in the world did Adam know that what he had just done was wrong? Clearly he knows something's wrong because they go hide themselves. You see, he had an internal compulsion, didn't he? He had an internal, he had a, what they call it, a moral compass. He knew that he had violated the word of God. He knew, he had it inside, God had put it in him. Not only does he hide himself, and the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Where are you? Now, does the Lord know where Adam is? Of course he does. Verse 10, And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Adam, where are you? What compelled you to hide, Adam? He knew he had done something wrong. What moved you, Adam? What, what, what are you doing over there in the bushes? Hiding behind the fig tree. <laughs> Get the fig leaves. I've wondered why he picked an itchy branch to cover up with. He understood some things, didn't he? He had a hard wire of, hey, I know what's right and I know what's wrong. Man had an understanding. Adam understood. The, but notice that he says, I was afraid. Where did that come from? Adam never had the issue of fear before. It's an emotion. But where did it come from? Notice verse 11. And he said, now the Lord speaking, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? Notice what the Lord said. Adam understood that his response and what he did was wrong. So his natural reaction was to go and hide, was to be afraid. Notice who, what the Lord says in verse 11. Who told you that? Notice that's the first question the Lord asked him after, hey, where are you? Who told you that? He doesn't say first, have you eaten of the tree? He already knew he had eaten of the tree. But the issue now is, 
Who told you that? Where did you get that information from? That's the soft side. What's going in today? They call it the information age. We have information overload. You know, I love the things on Facebook about, would you live in a cabin by the stream with no phone and no internet? Yes or no? You know, I'm like, well, as long as there's electricity, sure. And, and the refrigerator's full, sure. You know, why? Because they want you to unplug. We uh, unplug for a while, you know. Nowadays, now you can't unplug because if you unplug, you, you just, where did you get this from, Adam? Who told you that? Where did you get that from? Notice how the Lord hones in on not the hardwire was wrong. Adam knew what he had done was wrong. But now, who, who gave you the other information? Come over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I, th I think about that. If you watch the news, any of it, quite honestly, you're getting East Coast news. That's what you're getting. You, if you, all you did was watch the alphabet, the mainstream media, you would think the, earth, the sky is falling and things are all, you know, oh my goodness, we're all going to die. When in reality, we're all still here. <laughs> There's something else going on. We have uh, uh, folks here that um, she's in the hospital. I call and talk to her because you can't go visit. And she says, Rick, there is nobody here in the hospital. She goes, I go into the ER and every third, there's like, all, there's like three or four empty beds. Now, she's not there for the virus. She had some other things come up. And she said she's talking to the nurses and they're on a rotation to be off every couple days. Wait a minute, if you hear what the media says, what are, what's going on? Oh, my goodness, we don't have enough. What do you mean you're not shutting the government down? You know, it's all this, that's, what, that's what's going on. Who told, where are you getting your information from? 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul asks a, makes a great statement here in verse 2, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled. Isn't that interesting? Paul says, hey guys, what's the source? Because there's a competing source out there, it's called the adversary, that's going to dump information in on you. We call it the lie program. We call it human viewpoint. We have different terms for it. And Paul's like, don't be so soon shaken in mind. Come back to Romans 1. That illustrate. by the way, go back there to Genesis. Well... Look in Genesis 4. Genesis 4. Genesis 4. N notice Cain and Abel, just real quick. We got five minutes. Genesis 4, verse 8. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. Cain understands that thou shalt not kill. That's already been labeled in. It's already been indwelled in him. How do you know it? Well, keep reading. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? You see how Cain deflected what he knew that he had done was wrong? What do you mean? Man, the last time I saw him, he was down there in that stupid field with those stinky sheep of his. 
It's not my job to keep tabs on him. What are you talking about? He's not, you know, am I my brother's keeper? It's, it's that self-deflection. And he said, what hast thou done? Hoo-hoo, I didn't do nothing. What are you talking about? What's going on? Man, I, I don't know where Abel is. And the Lord says, yeah, you do. You're guilty. Look at verse 14. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day. Cain is speaking to the Lord. My, notice this, my punish, verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. You just killed a guy. Isn't that what, oh, I'm innocent. I didn't do it. You just killed the guy. And your punishment is greater than I can bear. Oh, boy, isn't that something you hear? So the Lord Verse 14, Behold, thou, Cain continues, Thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid, and thou shalt be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall, what? You just mark me to be killed. You just, I, you know what, if I, you're going to send me out there to roam the earth, and you know what? I'm gonna, they're gonna see me and they're gonna wanna kill me. You just gave me the same sentence that I, you know, oh, you did kill Abel, you know. Anyway, come back to Romans 1. You see, folks, the point is, is the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteous because, first charge, they willfully reject the testimony that God has given them. It's hardwired in them that there is a God. They have allowed the soft, the, the out, outside sources to come in and to influence, change, adjust, attack the truth. Because that which was maybe known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. God has built into man that internal awareness of right and wrong. Hardwired it in him. What man does with it is what charge one is all about. That willful rejection of that testimony. Now we'll stop here and we'll get in verse 20 next time. We'll look at creation. Because not only did he hardwire it in him, but then he gave him an external, internal evidence. Now we're going to have an external evidence. And that helps to answer some of that question that comes up every now and then about what are those, about those people that never heard the gospel? Blah, 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 blah. Well, what do they have? They have a testimony that there is a higher, that there is a God, that there is a creator. We'll look at that next time, okay? All right. Dearly Father, we thank you for the morning, Lord. We thank you for your word. And above all, Lord, we thank you for your righteousness for your justice, for your holiness, and for you to say that you had faith in the blood of your Son and that you set him in our place. And all that you require of us is our, our simple faith in that activity of your Son. We'll give you the praise and the honor and the glory. In your name we pray. Amen.